Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for another restful episode of True Scary Stories to Help You Fall Asleep. Today, we are going to be reading True Let's Not Meet Stories. I hope you enjoy them. So, without further ado, lay back, relax, and enjoy these true scary stories. When I was about 9 or 10, I was invited to a classmate's birthday party at some swimming baths. All of us were the same age. It was a small class of about 20 kids, and I'm pretty sure that everyone was invited. Just to clarify, I'm a boy. Anyway, I kind of got separated from everyone, and it was just me and this girl alone. I wasn't particularly close friends with her, but I did know her as she was in my class. To describe the location... It was in a tunnel that connected to the main wave pool to a lazy river. There wasn't really anybody else there, just me and her, when she suddenly lunged at me without warning. She grabbed my head and held it underwater. I was a pretty skinny kid and she was bigger than me, and a bit of a tomboy. About 20 seconds went by as I furiously tried to free myself, but she wasn't letting go. Fight or flight and mass panic took over, and I eventually fought my way free. I was coughing and spluttering water as I emerged. I remember looking at her and just being in shock. I think I began to ask why she did that when she lunged at me again. She again held my head underwater for what felt like a lifetime before I fought my way free. Both times, I genuinely thought I was going to drown, and she didn't let me up. I had to fight my way free. I couldn't swim at this time, but the water in the lazy river and tunnel was just maybe chest high. I began to backpedal away from her. She was giggling as if it was funny and had this kind of crazed look and grin on her face. I couldn't just climb out to escape as it was a tunnel, so I had to try and get out of there. As I was backpedaling, she was following me, and I made sure to keep distance so that she couldn't lunge again, but she was gaining on me. I actually managed to reason with her as I was so scared of her I was babbling at her. I tried to distract her by suggesting we go down a water slide together. It worked as I could see her thinking about it, and she stopped chasing me. I managed to exit the tunnel in water, and she slowly followed me, but seemed a bit unsure. I immediately felt more safe as I was out of the water and could see other people around as we headed towards the slides. I kept talking all the way up about how fun the slides were, but she didn't really speak at all and had a strange look on her face the whole time. Anyway... After we went down the slides, I caught up with my friends and just stuck with them for the rest of the time, as I was a bit shook up. I never told them about it, and it was a bit embarrassing to admit that a girl had tried to drown me, and I was worried that I'd get teased. Anyway, fast forward to adulthood. She got with her partner, who had two or three kids from her previous relationship. Turns out, they were very abusive to the kids, and eventually, because of what they were doing to the kids... One of them passed away. She is currently serving a life sentence in prison. I told my friends about this swimming pool incident after hearing about her crimes, and I'm pretty sure that they think that I'm just messing around, as none of them took me seriously. Maybe as I kind of lightheartedly said that I was almost victim number one. However, nonetheless, 
It is a bit crazy to think back as she obviously was a genuine psychopath. And if I'd never fought her off me to escape and then convinced her to go down that slide, I genuinely believe that she would have killed me. For context, I am now 26 years old, and I met my stalker at the ages of 14 or 15. So when I was 14, I decided to take ballroom dance classes. That was kind of normal for teenagers in my generation in my country. There, you had to change partners each song, so every girl would dance with every boy. In my group, that consisted of mostly teens between 14 to 17. There was a really tall, almost 2-meter 21-year-old guy, Philip. We had a nice chat the times we danced, but he seemed weird, and because I was young and naive, and that's how I normally made friends, I told him where I lived when he asked me. So the stalking began, and at the time I did not realize that it was stalking. I just thought he had a lot of time, and that it was annoying. But anyway, Philip would ride on his bike from his home, he only lived one town over from me, to my house, and asked if I wanted to spend time outside with him and play. After doing that for a few times, I asked my parents to tell him that I was not home when he would come over. Both my parents and I were very oblivious about his actions for a very, very long time. At one point in time, the stalking ended for a few weeks, and Philip also did not come to dance classes. At that time, I became part of a friend group of a boy that I fancied. For some months, he had a girlfriend, but they split soon after, and I became his girlfriend. Unfortunately, Philip was also friends with the best friend of my boyfriend, so he was also part of the group. They told me Philip was in a mental hospital. In the span of his stalking, Philip was in several mental hospitals multiple times, and every time he was, I was glad because I would get some peace. When I was 16, my family and I had to move because our landlady had thrown us out. She wanted to live in the property herself, so we moved one town over. We started living two streets apart from my stalker, and every time Philip was out of the hospital, he would be at my house. It wasn't as often as before, but still. At my father's birthday, he rang again, and because my family had guests, they told me to open the door, and there he was looming over me, like a dark, menacing shadow man. I told him to leave, and I tried to close the door, but he blocked it. So I was standing there, afraid, begging him to leave. At one point, I even ran inside to get my dad to send him away, but my dad said, he's your friend, so it's your problem. So I went back to the door and I begged and pleaded that Philip please leave. At one point, he was kneeling slash setting in my doorway. After almost two hours, he finally left. And at that point, it was obvious for me, finally, because I had realized what type of behavior it was, that he was a stalker and he was fixated on me. The next day, I sat down my parents and told them that I was afraid of Philip, and my dad also apologized to me for putting me in that situation and not helping me. The next time Philip came to my house, my dad was there and told him that I do not want any contact with him, so he left. After a few more incidents like that, he stopped showing up at my door, and I thought that we finally got rid of him. But every time I started to live happily, starting to forget my fear of him, a letter, an email, or a gift would show up and would send me back into my fears. At the age of 20, I was out of school, 
and to pass the year, I had to wait to start my job. I worked in a grade school in a voluntary after-school care club for grade schoolers. After a month or two, my mom woke me up in the morning and told me to get dressed because she had called the cops. Apparently, Philip was again every morning at our door and would ask for me, and my parents didn't tell me so that I wouldn't get scared again. Finally, after the cops told Philip three times to leave and he ignored them, they arrested him, and he screamed and screamed my name and that he was burning for me and that the cops hurt him. My parents and I were standing in the kitchen listening. The situation was so absurd and so much for me that I started laughing hysterically. We filed a report at the police for stalking and trespassing, but the officers said that they could not do anything because he hadn't hurt me physically. We tried to get a restraining order, but it didn't go through. A week later, Philip had sneaked into our garden, and like in a movie, he threw rocks at my window. And just as a side note, throwing rocks at a girl's window is not romantic. It's creepy. But idiot me opened the window, but I did not see anything until it clicked, and I ran downstairs and told my dad that he was in the garden. Philip escaped before my dad was able to go check. A week after that, I was in the kitchen cooking when Philip rang the doorbell again, and because we have no way of seeing who was at the door, I opened it. And there he was again, telling me that he missed me, and saying that he had peeked through the blinds of the windows in the living room the past week to see if I was there. My parents weren't home. If they had been, I would have ran. But like this, I had to swallow my fear and stand in the doorway listening to Philip talk until my boyfriend, different guy than before, came. I had to send him an SOS text message, and he was on his way. After my boyfriend finally arrived, he told Philip to leave, and he did. Philip mentioned in passing that he also now has a girlfriend. After that, I did not see Philip for a long time. A friend told me that he was taken by the men in white coats because he had believed that his mom was possessed by the devil. I was glad. It wasn't until two years later when I got a letter from court. I was a witness and told to attend in the case of assault of Philip. Apparently, after coming out of the mental hospital, he had a big fight with his girlfriend, and he hit her, and because she was scared, she played dead. Philip called an ambulance, and the police finally had something against him. After the hearing, he was admitted again to a mental hospital, and I finally got a restraining order, and he was ordered to stay at least 30 meters away from our property. I was so glad. The restraining order also implied that if he broke any of the requirements, he would go to jail. So it was over. Two years ago, I also moved out of my parents' house. I'm posting this only now because I believe I'm seeing him again. But it can't be. He doesn't know where I live, and he also hasn't shown up at my parents' house. But I believe that I have seen him when I leave the house. I just need reassurance that it's not him again, and that I'm safe at my home. Update. So I installed a security camera, and my neighbors also told me that there's a man that looks quite similar to Philip working at the senior living center at the street over. So for now, I think I'm safe. I believe that I saw that person and not Philip. I'm a 29 year old female and I grew up in a nice suburban neighborhood. I lived in the same house my entire childhood and only left once I moved out as an adult. I always felt safe, leaving our doors unlocked, window open, 
going for late walks as a teen. I was around 17 when I noticed strange things started happening around my house. My house was also haunted, so weird noises and things moving on their own were not a new thing. But this isn't a paranormal story. But this is probably why I and my family dismissed my experiences for so long. As a teen, I worked at a movie theater, and I did not work until the afternoon, and I would get off very late at night. I turned into quite the night owl, and it was normal for me to stay awake until about 3 in the morning. It started off as my dog reacting to things outside. I would peek outside my window and I would never see anything, so I assumed that my dog was just hearing noises and overreacting. Not too long after this started, I was outside and noticed that there were handprints and a mark between them on my window, as if someone were pressing their forehead against the glass. At the time, I just dismissed it. I had plenty of friends coming in and out of my house, and they would knock on my window sometimes as they arrived. My window was by the driveway as you walk out the front door. The weird thing is that this window is very large. The window would start about three feet from the ground and went at least eight feet high and was about four feet wide. It was a one-story house. The forehead and hand marks were at least six foot five off the ground. I definitely did not have any friends who were that tall, and everyone in my family is less than five foot six. Soon after that, I woke up around 5 in the morning to my car alarm going off. Again, I did not think anything of it and just dismissed the situation. This happened a few more times within the next few weeks, always between 4 and 5 in the morning. But the last time I noticed handprints on the top of my car, as if somebody was trying to crawl through my open sunroof. After that, I made sure to close all of my windows and lock the doors. Again, I dismissed it thinking just some hoodlums were trying to get into an unlocked open car. Not long after the car incident, things started to escalate. One morning as I was leaving to school, I found a small stepladder outside of my window, leaning against the house, as if somebody was looking through my window. I had blinds that would move from the top and bottom. I normally had the blinds closed on the bottom and left about two feet open on top to allow sunlight in, but still have privacy. When I looked at my window, I could still see the handprints and forehead mark were placed right above the opening of my blinds. This means that they were able to use a stepladder to get a good look into my room. With the ladder against my window, I started to piece together the events over the last few months and realized that I had a peeping Tom. I brought this up to my parents, but they didn't seem to worry and made no effort to do anything about it. Over the next year, I found the ladder against my window many more times. This person would use an old stepladder that we had in the side yard that was unlocked. I would continuously put the stepladder back in the side yard, but it would continue to show up next to my window on many mornings. I don't know why I did not just put the stepladder in a place that was not accessible. To be honest, I was a teen smoking a lot of weed at this time, so I feel as though I was not using very much critical thinking. I have two other sisters who lived with us, but they did not seem to notice anything weird happening. About a year after I noticed the occurrences, we found my sister's bra was out in the yard, and we did not have any explanation. This made me think that somebody may be trying to actually get in the house when we were gone, with some success. I became extremely paranoid. We would often hear male voices outside our front doors, but it was common for us to hear disembodied voices due to the house haunting. My sisters and I were often home alone, and when unexplained voices happened, we would just go to our room turn on some Spongebob and try our best to ignore it. Again, my parents were aware that all of this was happening, but did not care to do anything about it. The last incident before we called the police 
was after a rainy night we found bare footprints outside of my sister's window in the mud. The screen had been fiddled with as if somebody was trying to get it off the window. Once this happened, my parents started to take it more seriously. It's funny because they did not care when incidences were happening directly to me, but the moment my sister has an experience, they decided to report it. The police could not do anything about it. They offered to send police every once in a while to fill out their paperwork in front of our house to make it seem like there was a police presence. This only happened one time and they never came back. My older sister made her boyfriend aware of the situation, so they decided to sit in the car all night and watch for the guy to show up. Every time he would try to pull an all-nighter to watch for this person, no one would show up. Looking back now, it makes me think that someone very close to my house must be the peeping Tom, because he must have been close enough to see that we had another person watching out for us. After a few years of these experiences, my sisters and I all moved out, and we have not noticed anything weird happening since. It still bothers me knowing that this person was never caught, and that we still have no idea who it was. It makes me frustrated knowing that it could be a next-door neighbor who we thought was normal, but was actually a pervert. This was all happening around 2010 to 2013, and was before we had easy, affordable access to security cameras such as Ring and Blink. I wish we had cameras so we could know who this person was, but there was no point in dwelling over the past. All I know is that now I'm an adult. I always have my security cameras around my house, especially if I have young daughters. I have also bought my parents some security cameras. They still live in the same house. Maybe one day those cameras will catch the peeping Tom, but I don't think he will come back now that my sisters and I are all moved out. I'll try to keep this as accurate as possible, but it's been shoved deep in my memory bank for years. Certain details are fuzzy, but here goes nothing. A little over a decade ago, I was working for the local cable slash internet company. I was fresh out of high school and it was my first real job. I should mention that sometime in my preteen years, I developed a habit of snooping through people's things. Whether it was at a family member's house or a friend's, I would always manage to slip away into people's rooms, closets, bathrooms, etc., and poke around, looking for secrets and hidden items. I would never steal anything, just take mental note of the things that I found and put them back without leaving a trace. So as you can imagine, landing a job that placed me in people's houses to install cable was almost guaranteed to stir up a desire to indulge in my long-forgotten habit. When installing wires for TVs and computers, I'd end up in crawl spaces, closets, behind desks, and sometimes under beds to reach outlets and such. I'd stumble upon things like adult film collections, embarrassing personal hygiene products, and a more than a few times extremely large collections of toys. After a while, it went from stumbling upon these things to outright looking for them. Most homeowners were too lazy to follow me from room to room, so they'd either be downstairs or outside in the yard while I went about doing my job. Like I said, I wasn't taking anything with me, just observing. About four to five months into me working this job, I ended up at a woman's house. She was in her late 20s or early 30s, I guess. White with sandy blonde hair and a sort of hippie slash bohemian vibe that was popular around my area mixed with a bit of emo. Weird combo, I know. She had a pretty big house for a single person, 
three bedrooms, two baths, and multiple living areas, but it appeared that she was the only one living there other than her cat who would occasionally run by as I was doing my job. She let me know that she'd be outside on her porch and to let her know if I needed anything. The house was quiet and big, so I knew I'd be able to hear her coming and have plenty of time to clean up if I happened to do some snooping around. The perfect storm. All in all, it was pretty uneventful. I carried on with my work, but every so often I'd take a peek around at her things. She was pretty good looking, so I probably would have been excited to find something that would allude to her promiscuous side. But no such luck. Just papers, knickknacks, some stuff that appeared to be schoolwork, etc. But peeking out from her pillow was a notebook, similar to the old cow print ones we'd use in school. I knew for sure, given the placement, it had to be a diary of some sort. I looked around to make sure that she was still outside, and then I cracked it open. Boring. The first few pages were random notes, planning, grocery lists. Far from the scandalous journaling about escapades and one-night stands that I'd hoped for. Just as I was about to put it back, I turned the page and saw a few words that caught my eye. Something along the line of panic. Anxious, safe. With concern slash excitement, I went on to read a detailed story written in first person about her hitting a man over the head, realizing he wasn't conscious, recruiting help cleaning up the mess, and dumping the body in a nearby river. She also journaled about the anxiety and paranoia she was feeling about everything that happened and the stress of sharing the secret with the person who helped her dump the body. I remember being extremely uneasy and feeling more creeped out in that house every minute that passed by. The silence of the house that I previously found peaceful started to bother me. Even the jingling of the cat's collar was beginning to haunt me, like something out of a horror movie. I was terrified that I'd be caught, and she'd take me out to ensure that I wouldn't tell about what I read, but I managed to power through the job and get the heck out of there. On the drive home, I managed to convince myself that I probably just stumbled on her notes, or an excerpt from some fictional novel she was writing. It did read more like a novel than a personal diary passage, but honestly, there's no telling. I laughed it off with a few friends later on and never spoke much of it again. It's been so long, I can barely remember the woman's face, her house, or even the town. But for my sake, possible murderous hot hippie chick, let's not meet. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at
I was in my first semester of university. I had just graduated college not too long ago, and had entered into a program that, after a while, I would come to resent. During that time with adjusting, and taking daily transit an hour and a half away from where I grew up, into the big city in order to study was somewhat of a new adventure to me. In a lot of ways, I was just beginning to sprout as my own individual, and trying to carve a path for my life, while simultaneously opening myself up to new experiences and a new environment. I have longtime friends who go to the same facility as me, but at the time, our schedules wouldn't always line up. This meant that a lot of my days were spent traveling back and forth and walking around the city alone. I really wanted to try and expand my horizon of experiences and friends during this period. In a lot of ways, I was really desiring to find a good community on campus that could help satiate my boredom and loneliness. I can be extremely extroverted, but sometimes I find that it takes a lot out of me to try and actually pursue and maintain friendships that haven't been established years prior. I've made friends before from different classes in college, but ultimately, and I know this makes me a jerk, but I would end up texting less and less until eventually either side would end up ghosting one or the other. Because I'm a busy guy, I don't find myself prioritizing people who I feel like aren't as important to me as others. I know, it's a really crappy thing to say, but nonetheless, it's the truth. One day, however, I met Joel. I was on the phone with my fiancé, and I distinctly remember exactly how it all went down. As I was walking out of the school's Starbucks with a decaf coffee, I had one headphone in and was heading to class through a small stretch of underground passageway under the street that connects the school's library building to the actual building that possesses classes. As I was hastily making my way, I saw this short and stout guy, looking roughly my age, which was at the time 21 years old, with a thick brown beard and a hat on. Our eyes met, and as I was about to simply walk past, he asked me something in a very charismatic and calm tone. Hey, sorry to bother you. You look like a pretty busy guy, but I was wondering... Do you mind doing a survey about religion? It's for one of my classes. To this, I regret answering and wish I had simply continued walking. But at the time, I was becoming more and more compelled by the notion of formal religious institutions and questioning my own religious faith, particularly leaning towards Christianity. Sure, I replied cordially. He then introduced himself as Joel. And after we went through a small survey pertaining to religious affiliations and perspectives on religions, Joel informed me that a small group of students like himself were planning on getting together as a group and discussing various religions in order to gather new insights and to create a community. Of course, with the prospect of finding some new friends on campus and also exploring my own spiritual perspectives, I gave him my phone number after he asked for it, and he said that he would contact me in the next following days. Upon entering our first meeting, I sat down in a very crowded place with seats at our school facility and was greeted by Joel, alongside a bunch of other members. They introduced themselves to me and vice versa, and they were all extremely kind to me. We began our small group meeting, and I was a bit shocked to find out that the sole topic that we were to discuss was Christianity. I wasn't aware that we were only going to be discussing Christianity, which was against what he had proposed this group to constitute upon our meeting in the tunnel. That being said, I was still curious enough to continue, and I was accompanied by three other young guys of my age, who after a bit of talking with, I found out that we had a lot of similar interests. Joel, who now presented himself as a leader of our study group, relayed how we would be discussing and analyzing Christianity, 
through a multi-step program designed to unveil the holy power associated with the religion to us. Since I was curious and wanted to learn more about the religion, as well as having made some newfound friends, I continued to attend this study group for the rest of the semester, in which there were a few circumstances where I questioned Joel's interpretations and was met with hard resistance. It felt like at times my wavering belief in what Joel was saying would be met with straight dismissal as opposed to actual conversation. I continued to brush that off as the group that I was working with got closer. The school's club, which I was now a part of, provided me with exactly what I had wanted. We even went to a church-run event together where I quit vaping and many individuals reported mystical experiences. Things only started to get concerning with Joel during our one-on-one conversations. I discussed my personal experiences and belief in my newfound religious beliefs and all of my former spiritual experiences as well. And Joel exposed to me a story and a few incidents that, at the time, I definitely certainly should have taken as red flags. For example, when he was younger, he had gone on a retreat where, when he was in prayer, he said that he began to hear the voice of God talk to him. I questioned at first if he was referring to the voice of God as more so a metaphor, but he had reassured me that he literally heard God speak to him before. When he told me this, I became a bit unnerved. At the helm of this community was Joel. But in all other senses, I was satisfied with who I was with and what we were doing together. Though I'm not entirely dismissive of strange occurrences, especially pertaining to spirituality, His experience talking with God in his head came off as uncomfortable for me. He also said that the way that he would pray would involve a direct conversation and a reply from God. Out of discomfort, I wouldn't prod him on what he meant by this. This, of course, was just the beginning. After the summer had ended, I found myself in the most religiously devoted state I had ever been in. Throughout all the summer, I had had a treacherous injury which made me housebound for months and to call upon God in a lot of ways for strength. With my newfound devotion, I was elated to fall back into the community that I had nurtured and grown with throughout the last semester, relating to something that I found deep joy in. At the first lesson of the semester, something was very different. Joel, as before, was at the helm of our study session, but he was now perpetually interrupted by people coming to greet him and give him praise. It was so bad that we literally essentially sat and watched for 20 minutes before we could get on with our lesson as more than 10 people, mostly young men of our age, came to greet this man. As aforementioned, when not unnerving, he was extremely charming and gave the impression that he cared deeply for everyone. Once our lesson began, he introduced us to the second phase of the program. He explained that this was one of the toughest programs of the different levels that there were as it required even more devotion and more importantly, an emphasis on sacrifice for those who engaged. He showed us a diagram of a small stick person, and he showed that in this program, we would have to accept Jesus at the center of our life. He explained that by making our lives surrounded by Jesus entirely, that we would not be losing something, but be gaining. He also began to go over the notion that intercourse before marriage is a sin, and that if we were to continue with this program, we would have to make the sacrifice of giving that up in our relationships and prove that we weren't. He said that many guys weren't able to continue because of this. I talked about this afterwards with one of the members of his group, who, not unlike me, had been in a serious relationship with someone that they loved for years. In my personal opinion, though we weren't married on the altar, 
I knew that both me and this other member felt devoted to our partners, as if we already were married in a sense, and we both expressed how Joel's behavior surrounding this was off-putting, controlling, and intrusive. After our lesson, I was a bit dumbfounded by the intensity with which he gave his speech about this new program that we would be engaging in this semester. Joel and I sat down for a few more minutes and talked, in which I expressed experiences of devotion from the summer and explained my entire catastrophic experience with my injury. He then went on to tell me that at times, he was actually able to know things beforehand. This seemingly random and strange statement shocked me. He said, for example, he was able to know something another member had before they had even mentioned it, and it was the way that he described it. It sounded as if he was saying he had some form of mystical foresight. I was a bit jarred to say the least, though. I felt like it would be impolite to question any further. Joel then went on to tell me that he believed that if I successfully completed this program, that I was primed to become a teacher for the first program I had done the semester prior, leading others who would join, and that I had a bright future in the organization. In that moment, with what he had laid down on us in that lesson, I felt overwhelmed by his expectations of me. It also became evident that Joel was not a student at our facility. In fact, he was in his mid-30s and had kids. He was actually just a part of an organization that recruits people to become Christians and missionaries that works on our campus. This means that he actually lied to me when I first met him. He wasn't a student. There was no group talking about various religions, and his whole purpose was to convert me to make me join the organization that he was a part of. At this point, school began to pick up a lot and I was also working part-time to help support myself. As I was on the train to head back home the next week, I had forgotten that my second lesson of the program that semester was supposed to happen. So I texted Joel saying, Hey man, I actually got onto the train and forgot about our lesson. Sorry about that, dude. I'm not going to be able to make it. I also have work later. To which he replied, Can you get off the train? Try and get here as soon as possible. I was a bit dumbfounded at this question. Since I live an hour and a half away, it wasn't as easy as getting off the train and heading back the opposite direction, and he knew that. He knew the area I live in is remote and a long distance away. I also told him that I had work, which he had plainly disregarded. No man, unfortunately I can't come. Have a good lesson, I replied, to which he said again, Come on man, just get off the train and come back. At this point I was annoyed. Not only did I feel like he was commanding me, but that he was also blatantly disregarding the fact that I said no and that I had work that day. I didn't answer him. I talked with my fiancé about how I was starting to feel about the whole idea ordeal and how I felt guilty about having feelings of wanting to distance myself from the group while simultaneously not wanting to lose the community and friends that I had established along the way. My fiancé told me that by the way that Joel was acting and with regards to the things he had said, that she was starting to become uncomfortable with the whole situation. I remember sitting in bed thinking about leaving the group and how the prospect made me feel physically ill. After all, I had been given everything I wanted in a community, except that the helm was a seemingly increasingly controlling and persuasive being who was making me and possibly other members more miserable. There was an event the following Friday that was going to be at the church, which was organized by the community. Originally, since many of the folks from this group were going, I intended to go. But alas, I was scheduled by my boss to work that day, 
so there was no way that I was going to be able to attend. I knew that Joel would be insistent upon me coming anyways. So when Joel texted me reminding me that the event was Friday, I told him that I wasn't able to go because I had work. To this, he replied and simply said, What? Bro, no way. You've got to come. Take work off and find somebody to take your shift. God wants you there. I was expected. He dismissed my decision and also said that I had to be there because God wanted me there, as if he was his mouthpiece. I went on to text him again and inform him. No, sorry, man, I can't do that. I just got a promotion and I have to be there. I hope you guys have a great time anyways. To which he then again replied similarly to what he had before. This was my personal breaking point. He knew the importance of my financial situation and his dismissal of my personal boundaries as well as his commanding made me decide to text him explaining that I was done with the group and that I wanted to pursue my own religious exploration without the group from then on. I felt as if he was slowly but surely increasingly controlling me and trying to take what he could, commanding me as if he were the leader of my life in any way possible. It was even up to him if I was allowed to have relations with my fiancé. He replied with a long paragraph persisting in this sort of overly kind manner that I had to continue with the group and that it was God's will for me to show up to this event, even though I was completely unable. He was certain that this group was meant for me, and that God had told him that this was where I was supposed to be. He replied with a long paragraph persisting in this sort of overly kind manner that I had to continue with the group, and that it was God's will for me to show up to this event, even though I was completely unable to. He was certain that this group was meant for me, and that God had told him that this was where I was supposed to be. After I responded again telling him to stop, and that I would not, he sent me another paragraph of similar length repeating what he would say. No matter what I would say and whenever I would say no, he would overstep my boundaries while maintaining a kind and friendly tone in order to try and push me into submission when I had clearly said no. At this point, I said I did not want to talk to him anymore, to which he replied, bro, why? Can we meet up? I want you to explain why you don't want to continue, bro, so we can meet up and do that and I can get a better sense and we can figure out what we do from there. Even in this, I knew that he was trying to elongate his chance at bringing me back and continuing his reign of control. I said I didn't want to, so he asked again. I decided at that moment that I needed to block him, so I did. A semester later, I was walking down the street of my school, and as I walked by a pizza parlor, lo and behold, who came out? Joel walked over to me with one of his friends and said that I was one of his friends to his buddy. I uncomfortably stood there, and his friend went inside for a moment while Joel turned around to look at me and asked with a disarming gentleness, Did you block me? I replied yes. He then said, You should unblock me, so that we can meet up and talk because I really want to know why you left the group. To which I evidently was frustrated, said okay, and just went on my way. That night, he messaged me on Instagram, insisting that we meet up again, so I blocked him there too. In short, I'm thankful for my fiancé who is the love of my life. Without her, I'm not sure I would have been strong enough to have left the group and his control. The fact of the matter is that there were other guys in that group who had absolutely nobody. They had nothing, and they were prime targets for a charismatic and controlling freak. There were members of that group who were in higher levels, so to speak who had done all the programs, who seemed as if they were emaciated, 
but they had become such restricted fundamentalists that their lives and their openness to new experiences were significantly thwarted. Beware of who you let into your life. And just because somebody is nice to you does not mean that they might not have ulterior motives. Also, learn to stand your ground and respect yourself. If you say no, mean it. My story takes place two years ago, sometime between the first two lockdowns in France. I was home alone in my small apartment, working on something for my internship that I was really stressed about. It was the beginning of the afternoon, around 2 p.m. Someone knocked on my door, but I wasn't expecting anyone. I went to open up, and it was a guy that I knew. Let's call him Jim. Jim and I had slept together a few times a few weeks before, until he pushed me away without explanation. We were still friends, but I was a little hurt. Was I that bad? Had he gotten what he wanted and wasn't interested anymore? I didn't dare ask the question because I was getting a little attached, and I preferred to wait for it to pass, especially since we were bound to run into each other again. Indeed, Jim had recently gotten a room in the flat of a friend of mine. The situation was quite funny because he had stumbled upon the ad without knowing that I knew the other tenants, and my friend didn't know yet that I knew the new roommate. I was going to tell her about it in person when we met again in college for our midterms. So I knew I was going to see Jim again, but I didn't expect to run into him so soon after he moved in, let alone during a surprise visit from him to my apartment. I asked him what he was doing there. He said he was bored at the dorm and was just passing through. I invited him in. I was a bit uncomfortable because I still liked him and he had left without any explanation about his rejection before he moved in with my friend. We talked for a while about trivial things, but strangely enough, I still remember the main points. Then he wanted to show me a new kind of massage against my stress that he had seen on TikTok. I hesitated a bit as I was still uncomfortable. Do you trust me? He asked. Yes, I replied. I sat on the floor and he touched my back for a while. Then ditto once I was lying down. I don't remember everything except that at one point his arm was around my neck and I thought... I'm not sure I can breathe. And then I blacked out. Of course, the memory of choking didn't come back right away. It took several months. But I'm trying to tell you the story in chronological order. When I came to, it was dark. I was still on the ground bleeding. I don't remember if I noticed the injury right away, but I had a large hole in my right side with many cuts underneath. The events are pretty fuzzy in my memory, but I wondered where Jim had gone and why I was alone. I went to look in the hallway, but my keys, which are normally always in the lock, were missing. I found the spare and looked outside. No one was there. Then I had my first stupid reflex. I thought, I'm hurt. I need to disinfect and started to take a shower. I think I fell asleep and had nightmares of being tortured and kidnapped in the shower, probably a way for my brain to try to warn me that something bad was happening. I then looked for my phone, which was also missing from my apartment. I was confused, probably drugged, I realized later. I decided to go to bed to resume the search after resting. I told myself, if I'm still hurt when I wake up, it must be real. It seemed very logical in my mind at that moment. When I woke up, my mind was already a little clearer, but I was still not totally myself. 
It was 8 or 9 p.m., I think. I was still bleeding. I looked for my phone again and I started to panic as I couldn't find it. I tried to calm down and told myself that it was probably there somewhere. I just had to ask someone to call me. I contacted my best friend, let's call him Tom, via messenger through my computer. I still had a hard time unlocking my computer. I couldn't type my code. I think the drug was still taking its effect. Luckily, Tom was online. He tried to call me on my phone, but no ringing could be heard in the apartment. I think he figured out that I wasn't in my right mind because he called me on messenger to see if I was okay. It was he who gave me the details of our conversation. I have almost no memory of it. I said, If you think you've been hurt, do you call the fire department or the police first? He freaked out and asked me to explain what was going on. I was very confused, but I think he got the gist of it. He asked, Did Jim do this to you? I don't know, maybe. I was still in denial at that point. Tom called the police for me. He couldn't come to help me himself because he was studying in another city. As I waited for the cops to arrive, I began to realize that I had completely messed up the crime scene by touching everything, looking for my phone. Not to mention the shower and the nap, which could have killed me in retrospect. I was still in no pain though. The hole in my side started to hurt when I was taken care of by the paramedics that the cops called when they saw the extent of my injuries. I had to undergo surgery as a result of this assault, which took me months to accept as an attempted murder with a knife. I had a hole in my liver a pneumothorax, and was bleeding a lot. Luckily, my other organs were not affected. While I was in the hospital, the cops came to take my statement and took Jim into custody. Imagine the surprise of my friend and her roommates when they found out that the new roommate not only knew me, but was also accused of assaulting and robbing me. One week after the assault when I got out of the hospital, the first bad news was that the cops were not able to retrieve the recordings from the surveillance cameras in my building which had already been erased because the procedures had been too long. The next day, the policewoman in charge of the investigation told me that, of course, Jim denied having been at my place that day, and nobody was at his flat to confirm if he was indeed at home all day. That's it for now. Go home to your parents and get some therapy. Great. Big up to my psychologist, who was an incredible person and helped me a lot. And then I waited. For a long time. I had to have the seals from my building analyzed for Jim's DNA. Without video or witnesses, it was the only way to prove that he was my attacker, or at least that he was in my apartment that day. It took a year and a half to get the prosecutor's verdict. No further action. No identifiable DNA other than mine had been found at the crime scene. I probably destroyed everything with a shower. So there you have it. We can't pursue the investigation. I could never prove it was Jim. I don't have any memory of the assault itself. I don't think I'll ever find them. But I have no doubt that Jim did this to me. I think if I ran into him today, I would freeze like a rabbit in front of a car. Today I am much better, but I still suffer from PTSD. For a while I couldn't drink alcohol because the drunken feeling reminded me of when I was going to be unconscious. Now I only panic when I'm with someone and have trouble breathing. I can't pull the blanket over my face if I'm in bed with my boyfriend, for example. And most of all, it makes me sick to know that Jim is free to live his life and to hurt someone else. Thanks to those who take time to read my story. This will be my only Reddit post. I just needed to share it somewhere.
All right. I spent my entire slow day at work yesterday reading through this sub, so now I want to share my own little story. My childhood best friend, Mary, and I were around 11 or 12 years old at the time. Mary's family had their own campsite in a provincial park about two hours from our own hometown and would spend the entire summer each year living in their camper out there. This particular summer, I was able to go and stay with them for a week, and we were excited to spend our time adventuring around the forest. On the last night that I was there, we decided we wanted to hurry down to the ice cream shop by the lake before it closed. It was early evening at this point, still pretty bright out, but beginning to lose light. The path we took was down a short slope right next to the main road with maybe 10 feet of thick brush and trees in between. On the other side was the forest with more tall, thick brush. So we were walking along, not seeing a single other person on the path in front or behind us. We hear a sudden rustling and snapping of branches, similar to the sound of maybe a deer running through the woods. I wouldn't have thought anything of it, but then the sound of running footsteps follows. Mary glances back and suddenly grabs my arm, urging me under her breath not to look back. At the same time, the running stops. I don't know why I didn't ignore her and get a look myself. I guess I could sense the very real fear in her voice and chose to listen. We both start to panic, getting that feeling like when you're running up the stairs after turning the basement light off. We pick up speed as much as we can without breaking into a sprint, knowing the ice cream shop is only about a minute walk away at this point. The path soon breaks and we are in the parking lot. Suddenly, Mary steers me hard to the left, heading towards the lake and the boat rental instead of continuing straight to the ice cream shop, and I go along with it silently. Understanding ice cream is no longer an interest right now. Mary is clearly panicking at this point. We are both looking around, but it seems whatever scared her is nowhere in sight at this point. Mary walks up to the boat rental and gets us a kayak and we climb in and begin to paddle out to the middle of the lake. As we paddle, she tells me that there was a man behind us, and that the man had stopped running at us very abruptly upon making eye contact with her. He had been wearing a long black coat with the hood up despite it being the middle of July, had a terrible smirk on his face, and she swore that as he stopped running, she saw him put something shiny away into his coat. He appeared to have just emerged out of the bushes after we walked past, given the sounds we heard right before he came running onto the path. We reached the center of the lake and stopped paddling. I pull out my Nokia brick phone that my parents had, thank God, given me just in case. I hand it to Mary to tell her to call her parents to come pick us up. As the phone rings, I see her look out past me to the shore and go pale, lifting a hand to point to what she's seeing. I turn, and there was a man stalking his way around the path that circled the edge of the lake staring out at us. We sat in the middle of the lake and watched him do two full laps, never looking away from us, before finally disappearing. It took a few tries to get a hold of her family. We were freaking out so bad the whole time, as the sun got lower and lower. We did manage to have someone come with the truck, but by the time we reached the shore, it was pretty dark outside. I don't know what we would have done if we hadn't been able to call for a ride. Looking back, I don't know why we didn't just go up to the ice cream shop and form an adult there and ask her parents to come get us then, but it worked out. We got back safe, and we thankfully never saw that man again.
Back in 2013, I had just started on an education, and after the first school period, I had to go out and find an internship to be able to progress. But at the time, it proved to be almost impossible to get one. So while I was looking, I decided to take another job just to make sure that we could have food on the table. After searching for a while, I found out that a friend of my fiancé's family had his own handicapped bus company, a kind of taxi service for wheelchair users or otherwise disabled people, and he needed someone to cover the night shift, since it was a bus that would be on call at least 22 hours a day. Seeing that I'm quite the night owl, I immediately told him that I'd be happy to take the job, and after I got the needed license, I was hired. The job was pretty basic. Pick up people and drop them off where they needed to go, and sometimes use a machine to get wheelchairs up or down some stairs. And when there were no trips, I drove to a designated area and did whatever I wanted while waiting. I quickly found a truck stop in the area where I could park and catch some Z's while waiting. There was a gas station where I could buy coffee in the early hours of the shift, and on the other side of the gas station's parking lot, on the opposite side of the truck stop, there was a rundown restaurant with a motel connected to it. So as to not disturb the sleeping truckers, if I got a trip in the middle of the night, I usually parked on the restaurant side. After parking there every night for a while, I noticed one particular room had a lot of people come and go. In the beginning, I thought nothing of it. But then one night in the end of the summer, while I was half asleep with the window slightly open, I suddenly heard yelling coming from the motel, and a dude came tumbling out of the room and started running, and a few seconds later, a big dude came running after him with something in his hand that I could not make out what it was. I thought that it was none of my business and went back to my half-sleeping waiting stage. Not much time passed and my phone went off. I had a trip about an hour's drive away, so I turned on the bus and was leaving the parking lot when I saw the big guy coming around the corner. The rest of the night, I had back-to-back trips, so I didn't park until I got home. The day after, I didn't get a return to home zone until 2 or 3 a.m., When I arrived at the parking lot, the area where I used to park had fist-sized rocks strewn all over the place. Not connecting the dots at the time, I just parked a few spots over and started waiting. I fell asleep pretty fast but was jerked back into reality when a car right in front of my bus honked its horn, flashed the high beams, and revved its engine. I thought it was just some idiot who noticed me sleeping and found it funny to try to wake me up and scare me. So I jumped out of the bus about to tell him off, but instead of driving off or stopping, the driver made the start brake thing with the car, indicating that I was the one who should leave. And then I connected the dots. Not wanting to seem like a pushover, I stood still and stared at the car. Not that I could actually see anything with the high beams almost blinding me, and after what seemed like a really long time, but must not have been more than 30 seconds the car drove off. After that, I decided to park near the trucks from then on. A month or so passed and nothing had happened since the car episode, and I figured that nothing more would if I just kept parking by the trucks. Then one night, I had a long 12-hour shift on a Sunday, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., and I didn't have time to eat dinner before work that day, and during the first half of my shift, I had back-to-back trips with no time to eat. So when I finally got to return to home zone, I quickly parked in the far end of the almost empty truck stop and got ready to eat my now very late dinner that my fiancé packed for me. I wanted to watch some TV on my phone while eating, so I sat with my back against the driver's side door and got comfy. While turning my back to the door, I had accidentally hit the door lock with my elbow. But that was my luck. As I was sitting there scrolling Netflix on my phone, 
I suddenly felt the bus rock and heard the clack of the door handle behind me smack back in position. I quickly turned and saw a dude with a hood over his head quickly crouching and proceeding to lay down on the ground and crawling under the bus with a big kitchen knife in his right hand. I quickly got up and made sure the other two doors were locked and then I looked in all directions to see if I could spot him. He was still under the bus and I was sure not jumping out this time since the knife made his intentions pretty clear. I turned on the engine, turned on the spots on the back of the bus and looked around to see if I had scared him off and lucky for me it did. I saw him run off and into a brushy slash woody area at the end of the truck stop. I never parked at that truck stop again after that night, and I made sure that all of my doors were locked every time I was parked. Okay, here's some background info. This happened years ago, and my friend and I were both 16 years old. Her parents took us to Wildwood Boardwalk for the weekend to celebrate her birthday. We got dressed, and her parents let us go alone to the boardwalk for a few hours during dusk. We started walking up a road to get to the ramp onto the boards, when we hear this guy pretty far ahead of us screaming at someone. We couldn't hear exactly what he was saying, but we could tell by his arms flailing that he was furious. At this point in time, there wasn't really a sidewalk, so we were on the road, and we would see him jump in his car and take off. As he approaches, he almost runs us over. We jump out of the way. Me, being the tough 16-year-old girl, I throw my arms up like, what the heck? Well, he sees this and immediately slams on his brakes, pops his trunk, and jumps out of the car. We were frozen in terror. He starts saying, come here, come here and then he pulls out a gun out of his trunk and points it directly at us. I could feel my legs weaken and my heart is in my throat. Right in front of us was a little intersection, so we book it down that side road as fast as our legs could go. We ran for a bit before I had the courage to look behind us. Luckily, he wasn't there, so I assumed that he didn't follow us. We were so shaken up that we went right back to the hotel to tell her parents. Unfortunately... Everything happened so fast that we didn't have much to go on, so nothing ever came from it. Thank you so much for listening to all of the stories in this video. I hope you enjoyed them. I also hope that you enjoy the extra rain at the end. Good night, everybody. And I will read to you in the next video.
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.